But I, I have to tell you, I'm really excited because um, after uh, about eight months in the book of Daniel, which actually eight months is a short study for us, we were, I think Revelation was at least two years or so, but I felt like it was time to get back into the New Testament, and even beyond that, I felt like we needed to revisit one of the Gospels because it's really important to keep our focus on the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then I discovered that it looks like it's been about 20 years, as best I can recall, since we've studied the Gospel of John. So I'm really excited to get into this book. There are many deep theological truths embedded in this Gospel. And all the way back in the early days of Calvary Chapel, um, we were taught, as new believers... We were encouraged to begin studying with this gospel, the gospel of John. Even non-believers were encouraged to read John's gospel with the knowledge and the understanding that this gospel will powerfully reveal to the reader the reality of the person and work of God's one and only Son. And in fact, they uh, even came out with an illustrated, there was a famous illustrator, I can't remember his name back in the, back in the day, but they got him to do an illustrated version of the Gospel of John in kind of a comic book form. And then we used that to hand out kind of like a tract, only it was just the Word of God, the Gospel of John. And uh, that's how much Pastor Chuck and the leaders of Calvary Chapel believed in the power of this particular Gospel. They're all powerful. All of God's Word is powerful. But Gospel of John seems to have a very special impact in people's lives. Um, as you know, there are four... Uh, gospel accounts in the New Testament. The word gospel means what? Good news. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to as the synoptic gospels, as in the word synopsis, because they're all very similar in nature, cover basically the same series of events. Matthew, written in 65 AD, that's the first one we find in our New Testament, Testament emphasizes the fulfillment of the Old Testament Old Testament messianic prophecies. Matthew sets out to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus, in fact, is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies, proving that he's the promised Savior, uh, written first and foremost for um, Jewish readers. Mark's gospel is actually the earliest, written in 55 AD, and uh, many people believe, many Bible scholars and theologians believe that this is actually Peter's version, Mark's gospel, that Peter transmitted the information to Mark, and Mark then wrote it down. It's the shortest of the Gospels. It's fast-paced, reflecting Peter's personality and hitting the ground running, starting right away with Jesus' baptism by John in the first chapter. Mark doesn't even go into Jesus' birth or any of that. It just starts right off with his inauguration into public ministry. Earliest of the four and actually was source material for Matthew and Luke. It emphasizes the humanity of Christ and his miraculous ministry. Then Luke 59 AD, so that's the second oldest. And as you know, probably know, the only book of the Bible written by a Gentile, Dr. Luke. And it's well-researched, involving interviews with Jesus' mother, many others, because Luke wasn't there to witness these things firsthand. He had to go around and interview people who were there. Um, Luke emphasizes the role of women in the ministry 
as disciples and supporters of Christ. And he also gives a professional physician's account regarding Jesus' many miracles. You might say Matthew's gospel is to the Jews, Luke's gospel is to the Gentiles. But then we come to John's gospel. The traditional view was written between 85 and 100 A.D. There's an alternate view that believes it could have been written as early as 65 or 70 A.D. But John's gospel is a whole different ballgame. John's been regarded as something of a mystic. What is a mystic? A person who seeks by contemplation and self-surrender to obtain unity or absorption into the deity or the absolute or, or who believes in the spiritual apprehension of truths that are beyond the intellect. And not surprisingly, since John has been identified, looked upon as something of a mystic, he is the one who transcribed for us the very mystical book of the Bible, the mystical last book of the Bible, Revelation. And John emphasizes in his gospel the deity of Christ, very, very important, and devotes nearly one half of his narrative. This is really interesting, I think, when you look at all the gospels. Nearly one half of John's gospel uh, relates to the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week. John, as you know, was one of three disciples in Jesus' inner circle, if you will, Peter, James, and John in a sailboat. <laughs> Remember that Sunday school song? Or maybe you don't. But they were the three closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And John actually refers to himself and I don't think it's in a, a prideful or arrogant manner, but he refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We read that in chapter 13, chapter 19, chapter 20, 21. Um, multiple times, John refers to himself in the third person, of course, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, like most people, it seems that Jesus had a best friend. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In this case, for Jesus, that was John. Remember, David and Jonathan had that kind of a relationship as well. And I've said this before, but I, I really encourage people to try and, and develop that kind of a friendship relationship with someone. Because just like it says in Proverbs, some people maybe try to be you know, buddies, friends with as many people as possible, be very social and so forth. But it says a man of many companions may come to ruin. Why is that? Because many shallow relationships are no replacement for one deep friendship, that friend that sticks closer than a brother. I know many times people use this verse to describe Jesus as the friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that's appropriate, but that's really not the... the core meaning of the verse it really means exactly what it says a man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother david and jonathan jesus and the apostle john for example you might say paul and timothy in that case it was more of a mentorship paul is the spiritual father timothy is the spiritual son but nonetheless that very special close relationship and in fact at one point Paul said pretty much everybody's abandoned me except for Timothy and so Paul had that one friendship that one relationship to hang on to 
through thick and thin, and it made a difference for Paul as well. You might remember this. John was the only disciple who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross along with Jesus' mother Mary. All the other disciples fled. John 19, beginning in verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. The fact that Jesus entrusted the care and keeping of his mother to John speaks volumes about their relationship, I think. So now we get into John chapter 1. We're going to look at four verses today. Verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read those now. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. So we're about to delve into some deep theological waters with John here. So hold on to your yarmulkes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this wonderful gospel of John. And we ask you now to bless this time of study. Open our hearts and minds to these truths. Help us to learn and grow today as we begin to dig into this very powerful book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So interestingly, even though John's gospel is placed fourth in the order of the New Testament, it really kind of is the genesis of the New Testament. We see the very same thing here that we see in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning... This is actually the first baseball game ever recorded in the big inning. Oh, well, seriously. In the beginning, the beginning of what? Revelation twenty-two thirteen. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Jesus, as you know, is the second member of of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we refer to our God as the triune God, one God in three persons, and the triune God has no beginning, but he is the beginning for us. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In the beginning was what? The Word. Not just any word, the Word. The Greek word here is logos. It literally means, this is really cool, it literally means the saying. And it's defined as a word, speech, divine utterance, analogy. What this means, folks, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is God's message to the world. He is the saying. God's revelation, God's proclamation, and he is encrypted in the scriptures from beginning to end. You realize that, don't you? It's been said that Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed, but in the New Testament revealed. But right, if we go right back to Genesis 1-1, um, in the beginning, God. God was already there. God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, after the fall of man, 
God is dealing out the punishments to the various people involved, to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent who is Lucifer. And he tells the woman, or the serpent rather, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, it doesn't say Adam's seed, does it? The woman's seed. Why is that? Because we know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus had no earthly father, has no earthly father. Therefore, no male seed was involved in Jesus' conception. It was a supernatural conception with God's seed combined with Mary's. And so this is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he tells Lucifer, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You can recover from a bruised heel. When it talks about a bruised head, it meant that Jesus was going to crush the head of Satan, which he effectively did on the cross of Calvary. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the Word Jesus pre-existed with God the Father prior to the creation of all things. How do we know this? Again, Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So apparently there's more than one person there. Plural, our, Elohim, but it's our. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all present at creation. And the Word was God. The Logos was God. Here John clearly states that Jesus Christ is God. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. Men just made that up. Have you ever heard that? Well, Jesus is clearly portrayed here by John who is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the word, it's a big W, isn't it? Because it's Jesus. It's the second person of the Trinity. Since only God existed prior to creation and the word was there with God, he must also be God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And John tells us here that Jesus was there with God and that he was God. He was in the beginning, verse 2, with God. Notice it says he, not an it or a thing. And some people try to do that with the Holy Spirit rather than referring to the Holy Spirit as a person. And by the way, that's a very important aspect of our doctrine, Christian doctrine, orthodox Christian doctrine, that the Holy Spirit is not just an essence or a force. He, repeatedly in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is also referred to as He. He is the third person of the Trinity. But here it's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God was in the beginning with God. I would propose that was is the past tense of I am. John 8, 58, Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
before Abraham was, I am. And that's all capitalized in my Bible because I am is the name that God identified himself by when he met with Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. See, God isn't the great I was or the great will be. He's the great I am. He exists outside of creation. He created all things. Time has no effect or impact on him. He operates within the realm of eternity. And in John 8, 58, Jesus identifies himself as I am. There's so many scriptures, folks, that support and prove the deity of Christ. And again, as I mentioned in the introduction, that's one of the emphasis on the, in John's gospel is on the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God, fully God, fully man, not just a man, but God in the flesh, God in human form. He was in the beginning with God. So Jesus, the Logos, the saying, God's message to the human race, along with God, the Father was there and created all things. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. This ties right in with Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that's the wonderful thing about the coming of Christ prior to his appearance and into this world. People could only view God as a very distant, faraway, unapproachable, unseeable perhaps unknowable, entity. But when Christ came, it gave people something tangible that they could see and touch. Remember, that was the thing with the disciples. They wanted to touch him after he rose from the dead, make sure he was real, that he wasn't just a spirit or a phantom. God came down to us. We were unable to go up to him, so he came down to us. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. So it's not only speaking about the physical world we live in, but it's speaking about the spiritual world, the principalities, the powers, the angelic beings, both good and evil. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Again, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that God spoke all things into existence, right? Let there be light and so forth. It's called divine fiat. God speaking things into existence. Something only God can do. Jesus participated in that process and it even tells us here in verse 17 of Colossians 1, in him all things consist. He holds everything in this universe together. He could speak the word and it will all just 
fly apart. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We have another Greek word here, it's zoe, life. And it means both physical life in the present sense, but it also speaks of spiritual life, particular, particularly the future so it speaks of physical and spiritual existence. Zoe, in him was life. Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. It was God that breathed life into the first man, Adam. John 14-6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, it's the same word, Zoe. So he's saying, I'm your physical life and your spiritual life. I'm not just a way of life. I'm not a way to the life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then John 10.10, 10, Jesus speaking here of, again, the enemy, Satan. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've told you before so many times, it's so easy to break it down. God is pro-life, Satan is pro-death. The thief comes not except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So, and the enemy does have some human representatives here on earth. I hate to say it, but he does. And so if you see someone that is engaged in these activities, stealing. And I don't just mean, you know, thievery, stealing somebody's purse, stealing somebody's wallet. There are many ways in which a person can be a thief, right? You could steal somebody else's husband or wife. You could uh, finagle your way into a situation where you take away from them a job opportunity they should have had, and you get it instead. Maybe you lied about them, maybe you undermine them and so there's many ways to steal and if you do that we talked about the mind of Christ last week remember if you are a believer God says you have the mind of Christ and if we're thinking like Jesus thinks we don't steal we don't kill we don't destroy and yet we look around us in the world today and there's so many people doing exactly that stealing killing unborn babies right destroying lives by encouraging immature, undeveloped, unknowing young people into altering their physical bodies and becoming something that they're not? I would call that a form of destruction, would you? In fact, I would call it stealing from them their God-given identity, and I would call it killing them because they will never be the person they once were. These are all the fruit of the devil. Evidence of a demonic, devilish heart and mind. Jesus says the thief comes to do these things. The devil, Satan, Lucifer. But I've come that they may have life. Again, it's that same word, Zoe. And that they may have it more abundantly. Better than ever before. And when he says that, he's not speaking necessarily about material abundance, material prosperity, there's an abundance that happens in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirit 
that have nothing to do with our circumstances. The abundant life in Christ is joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. It's walking through this life in victory, not letting your circumstances overcome you, but being an overcomer in Christ. He said, I've come that they may have life, Zoe, and they may have it more abundantly. We're also told in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Bible clearly tells us life begins at conception. David speaks about the fact that God knew him in his mother's womb. He was already a person. Those that promote open, unlimited, unrestricted, free abortion will tell you that life doesn't begin until the baby's out of the womb. And even then it's questionable. Right? The Bible teaches this life begins at conception. Every human being at conception is imbued with a spirit created in the image of God. But that spirit must be redeemed by the blood of Christ. John 3, 5 through 7. This is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Remember? Nicodemus, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, the, the council of 70, made up the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, basically the spiritual leaders so-called of Israel. And they would be the political leaders too if it wasn't for Rome. Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So even though God imparts to every human being at conception an eternal spirit, there has to be a second birth because the spirit is born in corruption, in darkness. The water is the physical birth. He says, born of the water and of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The water is the physical birth. Because what's the, what's the key indicator that a baby's about to be born? The mom's water breaks, right? Born of the water. Some have equated this to baptism. I don't agree. I think it's exactly what it says it is. Physical birth, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The spirit, that which is born of the spirit. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, the first word spirit has a capital S. Because that's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit, big S, is Spirit, little S. That's when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us and regenerates us by means of the second birth. Because Jesus said you must be born again. In order for you to have an opportunity to be redeemed, to be saved, to live with God for all eternity, first you've got to be born into this world, right? 
It's sad when you hear somebody say, I wish I'd never been born. Because I thank God all the time that I was born. Because had I not been born, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to know him and to become part of his family and to live forever with him in paradise. That opportunity only comes once you're born into this world. But then, if you want to become a part of God's forever family, it requires a second birth. You've heard me use this expression before. Born once, die twice. Why is that? Because if you're born once, that means you haven't been born again. You're going to die physically, and you're going to die spiritually. But that will be a conscious state of existence. Everyone has an eternal spirit. The question is, will you live forever with God in paradise, or will you exist forever apart from God in torment? See, there are some people who say, well, at least when I die, there's nothing after that. I just basically go to sleep and then it's darkness. No, it doesn't work that way. Those who refuse to accept Christ, to accept God and go their own way, their only last hope is, well, a couple things. They say, oh, we're going to party together in hell. No, you're not. You're not going to be having a barbecue. You will be the barbecue. So those who think that they can find peace after death in this life, the only way to find that peace is through Jesus Christ. The water is the physical birth. The spirit is when the spirit of God regenerates us through the second birth. And then we're told the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus, the Zoe, is the one who takes us out of darkness, sin and death. That's the realm of darkness. We're born in sin. We're in darkness until we come into God's marvelous light, the light of eternal life. This is really cool, too. The Greek word here for light is phos. It's where we get our word phosphorus. Pretty cool, huh? Phos equals light, especially in terms of its results, what it manifests. In the New Testament, the manifestation of God's self-existent light, the Bible says he dwells in unapproachable light, God's self-existent light, divine illumination to reveal and impart life, through Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 You, of course Peter speaking to believers, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The light, Foss, Jesus, was the light of men. The life was the light of men. John 12, 46. Let me first John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And again, it's a big L. Foss with a big L, light of life. Jesus is the light. Whoever, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46. I've come as light 
into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And I've shared this many times. I might have even said something about it last week, but just my experience when I finally yielded my life fully over to God. I'd received Christ as a child, went on my own way for quite some time, and when I came back to him as a teenager and rededicated my life to him, that's when I came into the light. I came out of the darkness. My whole way of thinking and seeing things changed just about instantaneously because the Spirit of God was living in me and enlightening me and illuminating me. And I'm sure many of you have had that same experience. So the bottom line, folks, all human beings were born into darkness as the result of sin. Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, one God, three persons, he came into the world 2,000 years ago to bring us into his light of eternal life. Again, back to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And again, the ultimate manifestation of God's light has come to us in the form of Jesus Christ. John 3.19, Jesus says, that same chapter where he's been meeting and speaking with Nicodemus, this is the condemnation. I'm not sure how many people worry about condemnation, but it's a real thing. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to examine ourselves before we partake of communion so that we won't fall into the condemnation of the world to make sure we're in right relationship with God. This is the condemnation, Jesus said, that the light has come into the world, speaking of himself, and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. By sending his son, Jesus, the Zoe, the Foss, into this world, God's given us a choice. We can go through this life, which as we all know is temporary, right? 70 years, 80 years maybe, if we're fortunate. God promises 70. He says 80 if you have the strength. We know there are many factors that contribute to that long life or lack thereof, but no matter how short or how long it is, it's temporary. God's given us a choice. We can go through this life stumbling around in the darkness. And that explains a lot, doesn't it? You wonder why certain people do certain things, why they say certain things, they behave in a certain manner. It's because they're in the darkness. You ever been in a room that was so dark you couldn't see anything and you're stumbling around and tripping over stuff? That just happened to me the other night. <laughs> I forgot something and I went... Uh, I think it was downstairs. I don't remember what room I was in, but all the lights were off and I thought I could navigate the situation in the dark and I was wrong. I banged into something and I thought, I better turn on the light. 
That's an analogy for our whole lives, folks. We're stumbling in the dark. We think we can handle it. We can make it. We can get through without any light, but we can't. We need the light. And Jesus is the light. So we have a choice. God's given us a choice. We can go through this life stumbling around in darkness, or we can receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and come out of the darkness into his marvelous light of eternal life. Just like Peter says, he who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's going to be a little short today. I've got to get my um, bearings again as we move into this new book. So let's stand. I do want to encourage anyone here this morning, if you don't have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, if you haven't been born again, that's what we've talked about this morning. Jesus, the life, the light. That's the title of the message. The Word, He is the Word, colon, the life and the light. Jesus is everything. He's the whole ball game. But if you don't have him having taken up residence in your life, in your heart, in your mind, if he's not sitting on the throne in your life, then you're still stumbling around in the darkness. So we're going to pray a prayer here in a moment, and I'm going to encourage anyone here this morning who's never really been born again. Maybe you've been to church a lot. I don't know. Maybe you consider yourself religious, but in your heart of hearts, there's a still small voice right now telling you, come unto me, receive me, and you've never really done that. I would encourage you to do that this morning, and that goes for anybody watching online as well. So let's bow our heads before the Lord, and if you'd like to receive Christ right now, pray along with me. Father God, I thank you for sending your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. Thank you for sending Jesus to bring me out of darkness into light, to bring me out of death into life. Father, I do confess that I'm a sinner. I've sinned many times, and I need a Savior. I need forgiveness. Father, please forgive my sins in Jesus' name, and I pray that you would Cause your Holy Spirit to come and live inside of me that I might be born again. That I might have the light and the life that you have offered to me. I thank you, I praise you, and I receive you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would encourage anyone that prayed that prayer today, come and talk to me or one of the other pastors, someone that you know here in the church. Let us know that you made that decision today so we can help you and encourage you and your new walk with the Lord. And now I want anybody that has a prayer request to raise your hand. We'd like to lift those prayer requests up to the Lord. Father God, you see each hand. You know each person that's uh, lifting their hand now, and we lift them up to you. Father, we thank you that we can come together in agreement. Lord, you've told us that the, the prayer of agreement is a powerful prayer. And so, Lord, we want to agree right now concerning those who need physical healing. Lord, whether it be allergies or a cold or COVID or cancer, Lord, it's all the same to you. One affliction is no more difficult than another. 
you are the great physician. And so we ask now in, in Jesus' name, Father, that you'd pour out your healing upon those struggling here this morning or those watching online or perhaps friends or family members that are represented here this morning by loved ones. Father, we lift them all up to you and we pray for your mercy to be poured out upon them, your healing oil to just run down over their head from the top of their head to the tip of their toes. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon them and bring healing, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. We also pray, Lord, for uh, those with mental and emotional issues. Those can be equally devastating. We pray for healing. You said you came to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. Lord, we pray for that here this morning. Lord, those that may even appear to be on rep repair, that the, the hearts are too broken. They're never too broken for you, Lord. We pray that you would encourage, strengthen, uplift, guide, and direct. And Lord, again, that you'd bring those struggling in that area into your light, out of the darkness of depression and anxiety and fear and worry and doubt and so forth, Lord. Touch their hearts and minds this very day, we ask in Jesus' name. Lord, for those who have had trouble with a friendship or a marriage, uh, somebody at work, somebody at school, somebody in the neighborhood, Lord, we know again uh, that the enemy, he comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, to divide, to break relationships, to tear us apart. Lord, you came to bring us together. We pray for healing in those relationships and marriages and friendships and work-related relationships. In any area of our lives where there is damaged or broken relationship, we ask you to come in like a flood, pour out your Holy Spirit, and bring healing, Father, and especially, Lord, for the marriages that are in trouble, we know, that, again, that the enemy wants to destroy our marriages, our families. And, Lord, he can destroy multiple generations in that manner. We ask for healing for those troubled or broken marriages, for restoration and healing of those relationships. And finally, Father, for those struggling economically, we are living in some rather perilous times, but you are our provider. Lord, and you promise to take care of us and provide us with our needs. Lord, we were taught by you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, we know it's not just physical food. It's all the resources that we need for life. And you are our source. No matter who signs the paycheck, you are ultimately our source. Help us to keep our eyes on you. We ask you to strengthen our faith. Give us faith and hope, endurance, perseverance, and wisdom on how to best navigate, navigate these difficult times. And we will be quick to give you the glory and the honor. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.